Hi, and welcome to episode 61 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And in this episode, we're asking, do we care what characters eat? Yes or no? <laughs> Um, and in the second half, we'll be comparing two books that are set in Victorian Lyme Regis. Tracy oh. Chevalier's Remarkable Creatures and John Fowles, the French uh, lieutenant or lieutenant's woman. That's yeah, you told me off for that last I time. I know, right? I just panicked. <laughs> I just went, I sort of, sort of word blindness. Um, French lieutenant's woman, um, as the good people of Lyme Regis, no doubt say. Yeah. Um, before we get to that, this is um, Rachel is going above and beyond, and yeah. is and is calling in from holiday. Yes, um, I'm only in Scotland. Um, before anyone thinks <laughs> I'm diving in from somewhere exotic, but it's very beautiful and um, the weather is gorgeous, surprisingly. Um, and I'm, I've tried out a different part of Scotland this time. So last time I was in Scotland last summer, I was in the Highlands. Now I'm in the Lowlands, um, more specifically in Dumfries and Galloway, Very nice. Um, which is a stunningly beautiful part of the world. I highly recommend it. And also completely empty. Everywhere we've been, there's been nobody there. Oh, wow. <laughs> so yeah. what, are you staying in like a hotel? Or? We're staying in an Airbnb, um, nice. a lovely cottage in a village called Monyive. Um And it's, yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. We've been to the seaside. We've been to... Um, the forest park, we've been to castles. Um, it's, yeah, it's been great. Um, we've got a couple more days and then, then back on the train. So it's a long old trip. Yeah. <laughs> it is from Glasgow back down to London, which is still going to be about 30 degrees, which I'm dreading. Oof. Um, yeah. you, have you managed to do much reading? Well, I'm still working my way through my enormous biography of the Brontes. Oh, wow. Um, okay. <laughs> which, I kind of, I was reading when I was in Venice and then I had to park when I got back home because I can't carry it because it's 800 pages long. <laughs> um, so I'm determined to finish powering through. I'm supposed to be writing my dissertation, but it's, it's not happening. Uh, but next week I'm not moving because I'm on, I'm on school holidays now. So, um, I'm literally chaining myself to my desk and I will have fans trained on my face because my flat is like a greenhouse. Oof, yeah. Um, and I am I am writing next week. By the end of next week, I'm going to have fifteen thousand words, and I might have to stay up for fourteen hours a day, but I'm getting it done. Yeah, you will. Good work. Yes, I can do this. And can. what about you, Simon? What are you up to, and what are you reading? Um, I am enjoying, uh, sort of, the summer, but also pleased that it's getting <laughs> slightly cooler now. I'm going to a wedding on Saturday, and I'm really hoping oh, no. that it's not still this hot. Which it will be, because putting on a suit in that sort of weather yes. not what you want to do. Right. Um, uh, we had our annual village drinks the other day. I've agreed to, to, to man a stall at the village fete in September, so I'm getting Brilliant. fully immersed in village life. So what's what's the stall going to be? Well, I don't know. I said I'd do anything that didn't involve live animals. So... Please, can you do a tombola? Everyone loves a I mean, tombola. Everyone loves a tombola. Um, I said I said that I'd done most sorts of stores in the past, and I have done I've done a splat the rat son, before. I mean, well, exactly, yes, that. to the man of born. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they did say they'd have like a petting zoo or something there, and I said, well, I don't really want to do that. But you know, anything else. Um, and yeah, I am reading Virginia Woolf's letters actually. So um, okay. back just just before I went to university, um, say fourteen years ago. I bought all of Virginia Woolf's letters, and I think I came from America. I decided that this was the sort of thing someone needed before going to study English at university. Yes. And, th and they were very useful for sort of dipping in and out of, and whenever I 
once it was writing about Virginia Woolf and insert topic here, I'd just look at the index and hopefully find something useful. But I've never actually just sat down and read them. So, I, um, and there's five volumes and they're 500 pages each, so I'm not going to do it quickly. But, um, <laughs> and indeed I've started with volume two, which starts just while she's finishing writing her first novel, because I thought it'd be more interesting to start when she's writing than to look at her childhood letters, for me anyway. I might go back to the volume one eventually. But yeah, it's been really fun to sort of immerse myself in that and see a a slightly different perspective um, on her life, because it's not as sort of self-conscious as... Well, not self-conscious, but sort of, I know, self-aware, I guess, uh, as the diaries, um, but gives you a good sort of impression of what she was like with different people. Yeah, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I've never, I've got the letters as well and the diaries and I've never read them again. I did the same thing. I bought them when I was at university and thought I probably ought to, to read these and then have never done so, but I, I will at some point. I did actually go to, I forgot to mention, um, Scotland's book town, Scotland's Hay on Wye. Oh yeah, how was that? Uh, Wig town. Do you know what? It was a disappointment, Simon. Oh no. Um, the, the Scotland's largest bookshop, um, is probably the same size as a bookshop on Charing Cross Road, to be honest. I mean, I think I'm spoiled because I live in London. Um, and they didn't have, I mean, I tell a lie, it was bigger than the stretch. <laughs> but it, it had a lot of stock that I wasn't interested in. You know, one of those shops where it's got a bit of fiction and then it's got, you know, loads of different topics of books like okay. golf and right. Scottish history and things like that. Um, and it's the bookshop of the guy who wrote Diary of a Bookseller. Yeah. So he was in the shop uh, and he was seemed very nice. I didn't speak to him. Um, but yeah, I didn't really find anything I massively wanted to buy. And with, with, um, moving pending mm. um i'm i'm kind of at a stage where i think i ought to not really buy anything until i've moved um so i was prepared to buy something if i if i absolutely fell in love with it but i didn't really and i went with we, we visited about five six different bookshops and didn't come away with anything i was really oh my surprised at myself yeah. i took a whole you know bag for life with me ready to carry my purchases yeah. um and no didn't get anything oh gosh and uh, how many bookshops are there is it only about five or six or is it yeah, there aren't that many actually. There will, there are quite a few, but some of them are incredibly specific in what oh, yeah. uh, types of books they sell. And, and there were some shops that, that didn't have much interest to me. For example, um, there's a bookshop that just deals in kind of like, you know, mystical stuff, which is, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and there was a feminist bookshop actually. Um, and uh, strangely, they had adverts in there for Persephone books, and yet didn't sell any, which... Oh, maybe they sold out. <laughs> maybe they had. They did have a whole bookcase of Virago books, but I already had them, so... Uh, yeah. I know. I think I've just got too many books, that's my problem. <laughs> uh, I don't think that could be anyone's problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds a bit like a letdown, but at least you've yeah. been there now. I know, I can say I've been to Scotland's Book Town. And it's, you know, it's very pretty. So, well yeah. worth a visit. Yeah. Anyway, there were lots of American tourists there, actually, oh, uh, which was heartening. Yes. Um, it's on my list of places to go, because I guess I went to the Welsh one when that existed. Obviously, Hay and on the Welsh border, but the uh, Blenafen was was another Welsh one, but it didn't last very long. It's a shame. Yeah. I did get some books. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> I was thinking, I'm sure Simon would have found them. <laughs> I can't imagine I'd come away empty-handed. But I... No, I mean, I would have bought books. If I hadn't have been moving, I would have bought books. Yeah. But, um, I, I just thought, can I be, do I want this enough to pack it in a box and lift it, carry it up three <laughs> flights of stairs? And the answer was no. Fair enough. Yeah. Right, so for our first topic today, we mm. were sort of drawing a blank, so I turned to Twitter and got quite a lot of <laughs> um, 
yes, good suggestions. Did, yeah, I mean, we'll say quite a lot of suggestions of topics we've already done. So clearly, my friends don't listen to the podcast, but <laughs> but it's nice <laughs> that they engaged. Um, and my friend Rachel, a different Rachel, obviously. Um, suggested. How dare you have another friend? I know. Me. Well, I'm afraid she. Oh no! I think I met you before I met her. Actually, although it'd be a close run thing, it wasn't far apart. <laughs> um, she suggested. Well, I think she just said food, and then I think we sort of worked out worked from there. Uh, she did talk about made up food versus real food, but I thought that might be a little niche since I could only think of one book that had made up food in. Um, so. We're looking at the broad topic of do we care what characters eat, which hopefully will give us opportunity to talk about significant food and meals in books, but also more broadly, um, do those sorts of everyday details, um, or do they bother us if they're not there, I guess? Um, yes. And I think we briefly touched on the idea of food in books in our, in our questions, in our sort of, in our episode 50 special where we had a Q&A, but that was only quite brief, yeah. so we'll say more now. Um, are there any meals or food in books that uh, immediately stand out to you when you hear the, the topic of food in books? Yes, I was thinking about this, and I think for me, I'm probably the same as most people, and I go to, to the famous five. Um, and Mallory Towers, mm. uh, in a Blyton books, essentially, or children's books, also Swallows and Amazons had quite a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Um, and I loved Swallows and Amazons as a child. Um, so yeah, the, the kind of outdoor picnicky food that's all the stuff that you love when you're a kid, like huge, sl- I always love the word slab of cake. <laughs> like that's the way Ina Blyton always refers to cake. Yeah. Um, biscuits and ginger beer. And, um, I associate that food with, summer holidays and just feeling life is wonderful and the sun is shining and you're outside in the countryside on a checked blanket and someone else <laughs> has packed food for you and you don't have to clean anything up and um, they always like, have tins of tongue and i've never known is, yes. is it is it actually a cow's Nobody, tongue it's actual tongue but oh. i think i i think i think i asked my mum about this because i said you know is this a thing and she was like well yes but she said no it doesn't look like a tongue basically it was like um Kind of like spam, I suppose. Okay. Something that, like she said, it's something that you would slice up. I sort of assumed it would look like that, yes. Um, Doesn't sound the most appetising thing, or particularly to me, a vegetarian, but but even at the time, I was... And, you know, meat, meat paste sandwiches is what was always something that I oh, thought that's just all wrong. I did you have those all, all the time, though, when I was a child. I used did to love you? meat paste. Oh, know, it just makes why. me feel ill just thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas ginger beer and slabs of cake and uh, macaroons they had, didn't they, quite often? Yeah. Still very fun. Oh, I love coconut macaroons. Yes, they're great, aren't they? Yeah. So that's, I think, that was a very early memory for me. And I remember one of the main reasons why I wanted to go to boarding school after reading Mallory Towers was the thought of... The, the midnight feasts, which sounded incredible. All the stuff that they'd gradually secrete away underneath their beds over like a period of a week. So everyone would have this stash of, of basically crap food under their bed <laughs> and then packing it up into a picnic basket and taking it down to the cove and, and eating it. I just thought this sounds absolutely incredible. Um, you know, obviously that never happens probably, yes. but. Well, you just, yes, I, you're I, quite near a cove. You should go down at midnight with some. Well, I, yeah, yeah, but I went to a cove today and I felt, and I felt like I was in Famous Five, but uh, I can't pronounce it. Colleen Castle, Colleen Castle, which was beautiful. Oh. Um, but yes, yeah, so that's, I think, 
childhood food in books is always wonderful and it's it's always the kind of food that your parents didn't let you eat so i think that's why it's (laughs) in huge quantities as well but how the famous five children weren't obese and being rolled down the hill um (laughs) they ate so much and they'd always eat um like enormous tea like they'd have cake and other forms of feed at like 11 o'clock then at one o'clock they'd have this enormous lunch then at three o'clock they'd be like oh well we're hungry <laughs> again now so we need to eat more um so they did spend the... every waking moment between meals cycling to the next yes, campsite so yes exactly. 50 miles a day um so yeah they probably needed the energy to be honest i mean it was a hard yeah. life for them, really they're either cycling or they're rowing so or they're inadvertently joining the circus so yeah it takes up the energy of these sorts of things or, you know, being kidnapped or rescuing yes, exactly. one another. It's so a tough life. Active, active people. They never sat down and read a book. No, they did. Um, I went sort of a different direction with the things, the things that came to my mind first. And it was where food has a, um, I guess, sinister element in, in books. Oh. Um, and the ones I thought of, and well, I now can't remember the title of it, but it's by John Lanchester. Um, any thoughts? Let me just quickly Google it. It was just about a, a gourmet. Um, no idea. Who we did it for my book group. Just John Lanchester's not capital. Um, um, it's recommended by someone. Um, oh, the debt to pleasure. Um, it's recommended by someone in the book group called Caroline, who's sadly died now. But she was. We always talk about the Caroline question, and we still do because she would always get very upset if, or you know, jokingly upset if a book didn't talk about the food at any point. And I think that was for her sort of representative of the things that the everyday elements of life, the things that the characters must have done to get by, but the author didn't think worth mentioning. Because she'd always say, when yeah. do they sit down and eat? If, you know, if it was a heist or something, she'd be like, well, they'd be at this for 24 hours. They need to eat at some point, that sort of thing. So yeah. as, as a result of that, she picked this book called The Debt to Pleasure, which I, I can't remember if the main character is a gourmet or a restaurant critic or something like that. Um, and his whole life, revolves around this food and that, as it turns out and where the sinister comes in is that he he kills people with poison mushrooms <laughs> um, <laughs> um and i was also yeah i also thought of five quarters of the orange by joanne harris and i can't i, can't, I just read that such a long time ago i don't remember what the <gasps> oh, significance of it was oh chocolate of course slightly yeah. more pleasantly i think the food in there because i think the yeah. orange is sort of weaponized in some ways in in right. the other in the other novel um but yes these places where the, the food takes on like a symbolic value of some sort. Um, and I, I think I'm particularly intrigued or particularly noticed the ones where it is a, a negative symbolic value, where it becomes either something much prized that they can't quite get and then beca- thus becomes much sort of larger than life, I guess. Um, or if it's used in, in some sort of battle, not literally, not you know, hitting someone with a plumbed up or whatever, but... <laughs> um, but yeah, becomes the point of contention between people. I find that really a, a really interesting um, sort of spin, I guess. Yeah, no, that is interesting. Now you think of, there's a, I can't think of what it's called, so you're probably going to know more than I do, the Margaret Atwood book that's about food, uh, The Edible Ooh, Woman. Yes, um, yes that's a really, really interesting book that's probably the one, only book I've read really where food is used as a it's a kind of a comfort but it's also a method of torture and mm-hmm. she she punishes herself by eating all this food and um i think she punishes herself or she gorges on food i don't know why it's been so long since i've read it so i just thought that was really interesting and the women's relationship with food and their bodies mm-hmm. and um but there aren't actually 
a huge amount of books that I've read where people have got, I suppose, eating disorders or anything like that. I mean, that's the only one I've read that where a woman is using food in a way to kind of combat emotional problems. Um, yes, I guess I haven't either. And I mean, perhaps that's because it's only become properly recognised maybe in the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years. And a lot yeah. of the books we read it from before that. No, absolutely. I mean, my my first thought when you said feed was thinking about was a wonderful feed that that own books and it's interesting that your friend was talking about in your book grief about your wendy Mm. people and and why don't writers write about this and actually someone who does write about meals and getting together over meals very well um and i can't let an episode go by without mentioning them (laughs) um, is the cabinet books um which (laughs) always have wonderful descriptions of meals and what's being cooked and the the different food given to the children and the different food eaten by the servants as opposed to the people in the you know the the family and it's really interesting to to see also you go into the kitchen and you see what the cook is making and the process behind cooking and um what people ask to eat and what people are given to eat and what food is considered suitable for children and what food is considered suitable mm-hmm. for adults and how the food changes when someone's come to for lunch is that, oh, well, we can't have that. That's, that's not good enough. We have to do something different. And, um, I really enjoyed that. And it made me actually feel quite hungry when I was reading <laughs> descriptions of the food. I mean, I, I don't know whether Elizabeth Jane Howard was a gourmand or not, a gourmand or not, but, um, she certainly sounded like it. And I loved the fact that she did focus on, on those everyday details. You know, life for the family did revolve around meals. You know, it was getting together at lunchtime. Everyone would come in from being in the garden or around the house and come in and eat together. And the conversations and arguments and things would happen over the meals and then the same for dinner. And, um, and I think, I, d- I, d- I think perhaps maybe some novelists think, think it's too boring or banal to talk about food, but the reality is, I mean, it is. Yeah. For, for a lot of us, it's the kind of the anchor points of our day. I it's mean, I know I really look forward yeah. to well, lunch <laughs> break. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. I think it is It is the structure of most people's day. And I think particularly people of Elizabeth Jane Howard's generation writing, mm. um, who would have experienced rationing. Yes. Um, and, and, and books, you know, written at the period of rationing and by those who experienced it. Food has that real sense of value as well, if it, mm. and because they're aware of that scarcity. Um, what, what, one of the books that um, has the weirdest use of food, I, I think, that I've read uh, is The Sea, the Sea, Iris Murdoch, which oh. um, I think I've probably mentioned before, a book I did not like at all, or just find extremely baffling. The writing is very good, but I had very little idea what was going on, or if the re- narrator was reliable, or if the whole thing was insane or fever dream, but um, it has all these lengthy recipes. So every, the, the main guy, when he puts together meals, he'll give you all the ingredients, if, well, perhaps not the recipe, but all the ingredients and then the combinations he had. And these are, I think, supposed to be funny. I just found them a bit tedious. But, um, but there's all these, yes, very odd combinations, and they, and they loom so large that you feel like they must be there for a reason. And I'm sure they are there for a reason, but the reason passed me by. How strange. Yes. <laughs> um I, my mum sent me some thoughts about um, f- food in, in novels, and she, t- she said Edith Wharton writes about food quite a lot. Oh. Um, and the other one she brought up, which I had only remembered from the TV series, but I guess must also have been in the book, was The Oranges in Cranford. Is, is that in the book as well as the TV series, where 
They... I don't remember. I only <laughs> read Cranford last year. I can't. No, I can't remember. Well, suddenly I'm going to be do that terrible thing and talk about the TV series. But um, they receive oranges. The uh, Matty and her sister. It's the first time they've got them, and they don't really know how to eat them daintily. They don't want to suck them in front of each other, but they don't. Want oh to get... yes, it is in the book. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they each retire to their own rooms yes. to eat their oranges in seclusion. <laughs> That's very cute. Um, which yeah, I love that that sort of detail and. and and it's not really serving much of a plot point, but it does, it does reinforce the characters and it shows you the sort of household it is and gives you that sort of, which goes throughout Cranford, I think, that faint ridiculousness but at the same time as you, as people really holding up their reputations and their dignity. And yeah, it's a nice combination of the, of the, of the dignity and ridiculousness that go throughout the book. Yeah, that's true. I think I'd forgotten that detail. I think as well, Food is a is a really interesting marker of of people's class, people's mm. tastes, and also his history. And it's actually really interesting to read books where you can see the food that people ate. Because if if we don't mention these everyday details in fiction, those sorts of details of everyday life get lost because nobody's recording them. So I mean, I found it really interesting when I was reading. Uh, the Heat of the Day by Elizabeth Bowen, and she talks about the restaurant food that was available during World mm, War Two, and, mm. and about the disgusting meals that they were having that were made up of particular things, and and the amount of tinned food that people ate um, during the 30s and 40s. You always read in in books um, from that period of people going into the kitchen and opening a tin and having yes. that for dinner. And I always had the impression that people's food must have been amazing before um, we kind of introduced frozen food and the fast food and things, but the reality is much the food was wasn't great then either and it's really interesting to see that the types of food people ate what what variety of food they had access to um what a typical meal was like for mm-hmm. somebody um and it all adds to the detail and and helps you to put put together a picture of, of the characters lives and I, I mean i really enjoy reading about food i think yeah. it's set central really one of, the, one of the details, um, speaking of food I wouldn't have expected people in the 30s to eat unless I'd read about it, it um, in The Provincial Lady, I think, it, I can't remember if it's the first or second book, or maybe even the third, but um, <laughs> she she's in London and she bumps into Lady B, who says, oh, doubtless we'll see each other at the Ritz or whatever it is, and she says, oh, doubtless you will, and then says, but actually I'll be having my plate of baked beans in a you know cheap cafe, and thinking... Does she mean just a plate of baked beans? Because I mean, I love beans on toast as much as the next man. But um, and perhaps that's the delicacy that people outside of Britain aren't as familiar with. But um, but just a plate of baked beans does sound a bit um, yes, not not yes. ideal. Really, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I didn't really realise that that kind of tinned food was available so early on, and. I mean, I remember also reading in, in Diary of the Provincial Lady, it must have been the wartime one when she's working in the canteen and um, serving up plates of like, sausage and mash and things. Yeah. And, um, and that's the food that people want. And when you think that she's quite upper class, I'm sure she wouldn't consider herself to be, but... Yes, she, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that's the kind of food they were eating and that's what food people wanted as well. And, you know, the the, the, the girls who the posh girls working there would come in and they'd say, oh, can I just have sausage and mash, please? And, you know, so you think, oh, these people must have had really sophisticated tastes and been eating caviar and oysters and what have you. But actually, you know, they just ate food like everyone else. Yes, and in general, at that point, 
in this country were eating food you could grow in this country as well. Yeah. So yeah, they weren't getting world cuisine particularly. No, um, I mean English cuisine has never really been noted for being particularly <laughs> fantastic. So certainly not the most flavoursome in the world. So yeah. <laughs> um, yes, it's almost times where I think pasta would have been quite an exciting <laughs> delicacy or exotic yeah. delicacy, rather. Yeah. Well, even my dad tells me that he didn't eat any non-English food until he left home. Sort of growing up on a farm in Somerset, he just ate what was there. Um, My friend Claire um, used to run something called the Novel Diner, quite briefly, uh, which was like a sort of London event night where people would come along and they'd be themed to a novel uh, and you'd be asked to come in the appropriate costume and also get food that was either representative of or featured in that particular novel. And the only one I remember oh. her doing, which they did to the lighthouse, which has Beth Bergenion uh, served as, so there's a big sort of seat, long scene, you may remember, in the middle where that, that is oh, yes. served. Um, possibly even with details of the recipe, I can't remember, but they, yes, they tried to make it as accurate as possible. That, um, and I really like that idea. That sounds really fun sort of way to immerse yourself in, in the world of a novel. I mean, yeah, depending on what they're eating, of course. Well, yes, <laughs> within reason. But no, that would be very interesting, actually, to recreate a, a favourite meal. I ought to recreate a famous five picnic and go off and have oh it. Oh gosh, on. yes. <laughs> and what the other Rachel mentioned when she when she suggested it was Roald Dahl and um, all the different sweets that were made up in the oh, yes. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which is, of course, um, very inventive and possibly enticing. Although most of the people ended up being killed when they ate them, yeah. essentially, didn't they? So, um, oh, speaking of Roald Dahl, I always think of that chocolate cake in Matilda. Oh, yeah. The guy has to eat all of. Yeah, that's disgusting. It's pretty bad, isn't it? We'll have to put you off chocolate cake. Well, exactly. It's literally the scene in the film, film of it. Um, yeah, yeah. So, it's, so it does cover quite a, a wide range of things, doesn't it? It um, does. And I, I mean, I, I suppose... Is there an either or here? I'm not sure. Like, would we rather not have food or would we rather have food? I think. Yeah, I don't think if I get to the end of a book and they haven't mentioned meals that I, I probably wouldn't even notice, to be honest. No. Um, and I, I don't usually want laborious over-description of them if it's not there to serve any purpose to tell you more about the characters or the time. Yes. Um, and certainly not if it's one of these ones where, you know, it's set in somewhere in the past and they've done some research and then it's going to dump it on the page. Yeah. Um, but where it, yeah, I really do enjoy it if it tells you about class distinctions in a household or just, just distinctions between different people. Um, or, you know, those places where it is doing, serving the plot or it is moving the plot on in unexpected ways. I think, I, I just think that's really inventive and, and interesting way to do it. And one, in fact, one book I've really intended to read, I don't know if you read it, is The Sweet the particular sweetness of lemon cake. Um, I can't remember who wrote it now, but that's about somebody who I think can tell what people are feeling if they if he eats food. That could be wrong. <laughs> but something like some sort of almost synesthetic or telekinetic yeah, or something <laughs> use of food. So, yes, possibilities are endless. <laughs> Aren't they just? But I will fall, yes. Generally, onto, yes, I do care what the characters eat if I have to pick one of the two. <laughs> Yeah, I think I would be the same because I think if we take food as being perhaps a, you know, a metaphor for the smaller things of life, I think I'd always rather read about that, the everyday things. Yeah. 
Yeah. There we go. Thanks for suggesting the topic, Rachel. Yes, thank you for getting um, us out of a tight spot there. Well, exactly. Um, I always threaten Rachel that it will be bikes versus cars if we don't get something else. So <laughs> eventually, <laughs> eventually, there will be, be no choice. <laughs> And yes, in the second half, we are looking at two novels that originally what we suggested could go together because they were Victoriana, but as I started reading them, I realised they were in Lyme Regis. I don't know if you were waiting for that to be a surprise for me, Rachel, or if you had forgotten what we talked last time. No, I think I, I didn't even occur to me. And I think it's because it was so obvious to me, I hadn't thought to mention it, but yeah. <laughs> yes. Both about Lyme, Lyme Regis fossil collectors, in fact. So, yes. Um, very similar. So yes, Tracy Chevalier's Remarkable Creatures published, oh, I don't know about 2010-ish, maybe? Yeah, it wasn't that long ago. Um, and The Fresh Le- French Lieutenant's Woman by John Fowles, which is from the 60s? It is the 60s, yeah. Yes. Um, any preference for which one you pray for us? Uh, oh, no, I forgot. I had to, would have to do that. <laughs> Come on, yeah. only keep, Rachel. <laughs> you, you choose whichever one you prefer, and then I'll do the other. Um, oh, I'll do uh, Remarkable Creatures, because it's okay. the top of the pile in front of me. I have just read both of them, which is why this episode is a bit later than anticipated, because they're both quite long. <laughs> um, <laughs> you did a very good job, actually. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so, yes, um, it, as you say, it's set in Lyme Regis in Victorian period, particularly looking at the life of Mary Anning, who became a noted um, fossil expert or someone influent- influential in that place, but started off as um, just a, a poor local woman in Lyme Regis who was interested in fossils. Um, who gets to know Elizabeth Philpot, who is a middle-class uh, unmarried woman who has to move there out of London because her brother has got married and she and her sister have to leave the house. Um, she comes down to Lyme Regis, uh, also gets interested in fossils, and the novel is told in alternate chapters between the, the, focus, between the two women, um, essentially as they're life continues there as the if fossil discoveries are made and, and these may or may not make a difference to the world and then their names may or may not be known and there are various romantic figure potential men who come and go um yeah that'll do okay thank you you're welcome um so the french lieutenant's woman is quite difficult to summarize because it's very um dense and multifaceted mm. book I would say lots of different stories going on uh, but the main thrust of it what's interesting about it is that it's a historical novel but it's the author is very much is writing in the present of the 1960s and is constantly reminding you that he's writing a novel so mm. you're not allowed to really be- you're not expected to believe that you're reading something that's authentically from the 19th century it's they are characters and we're very aware that they're characters so that's the first kind of conceit of the, of the book um which is quite different from remarkable creatures which is is just a straight up historical fiction um so the main story um is around charles and ernestina who are a kind of young engaged couple and they're in lyme regis i think ernestina's staying with her aunt or something um i can't remember and he comes down to visit her and there is this woman who is called Sarah, who is this kind of legend in Lyme Regis that she stands at the end of the cob. So for people who don't know Lyme Regis, um, certainly if you're not English, you might not. Um, if you've read Persuasion, um, mm, yeah. you'll say that there's, there's, the cob is also in there. There's, so Lyme Regis is kind of like, um, it has this, how would I describe it? It's like a, 
a harbour wall, I suppose, in some ways. It's, mm, there's like a, a bit of a wall that is built out into the sea to, to create a, a, a harbour area for the, for the ships. And um, you can walk along it basically out to sea. And it was a very popular activity to do. I mean, you can still do it nowadays, but it's pretty. Da- it can, can get dangerous if the, the tide is high. So there's this woman who stands out at the end of this wall, basically every, every day, just staring out to sea. And there's all this kind of story about her. Who is it? She's a scarlet woman. Um, she's basically was it fell in love with a French lieutenant and, um, she shouldn't, like she basically allowed herself to live. She lived with him. She openly lived with him and then he left her and, um, but, Charles, who's engaged to Ernestina, gradually becomes obsessed with her and starts following her around um, and wants to find out more about her. And so the whole story basically is trying to find out who she is and what her story is, um, whilst also Ernestina becoming very frustrated with Charles and their relationship. How can their relationship continue um, if he is? she starts to suspect that there's more to it than... Charles is putting on, and yeah, so that's basically. I mean, that wasn't very well explained, was it? Uh-huh. But, but they're sending the catalyst for the, not, yeah. Yeah. Um, have you been to Lyme? I have, yes. Yeah. Um, many yeah. years ago, and it's it's an interesting place. It's very it's very quaint. Yes, um, my family live about twenty minutes away from it, so ah. I've been fairly often. In fact, one time, uh, my mum, I can't remember if I said this in the last podcast, but I'll say it again if I did. My mum ran like a literary week for friends and, and locals, uh, just like reading groups and all sorts of activities, including going to Lyme, where, where mum in costume as the yeah. lieutenant's woman sort of stood on the end in this enormous billowing cloak she'd made. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and then we tried to reenact Louisa jumping from the wall yes. from from persuasion with a lady called Alma who must have been about 70 at that point jumping into my arms but sadly we reenacted it too well and I did miss her and she did fall to the ground <laughs> sorry Alma she was fine <laughs> uh, she did not fall quite as high from quite as high as uh, Louisa had <laughs> but uh, yes the, the cops been there for centuries and, uh, and I don't quite know how many centuries but at least before persuasion was written and I think rather longer than that um, so I just, yes, I, I say I both read both of these in the past few weeks. When did you first read them? I read them, I think I read them both. I definitely read The French Lieutenant's Woman in 2016. I can't remember, I think maybe the same year I read that, so or last year, so very recently. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um. And what what do your thoughts on? Let's start with Chevalier. Why not? Because well, you said you I mean, had strong thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I did. Have, so I'd never read any Tracy Chevalier before. And I was uh, reading a lot about geology and fossils and things like that in, in the 19th century. I'd written an, an essay on mm. um, a similar topic. Um, and I've been very interested in Darwin and all the kind of Victorian science and Victorian scientific discovery, natural science. Um, and somebody recommended me to me that I ought to read this. It might even have been you. I don't know. Somebody mentioned it. Um, and I thought, oh, I, I didn't realize that, and that she, that, that Tracy Chevalier had written a book about Mary Anning, who was this mm. famous, uh, fossil collector. And they said, oh, that would be right at the street. So I thought, oh, great. So I went, in, I happened to find a copy in the charity shop and picked it up. And I knew that Tracy Chevalier had written historical fiction before I'd heard of her. 
And I actually heard her speak actually at an event. I think she spoke at um, a book award ceremony I was at or something. I can't remember. No, she was at a training day I was at. Um, and I thought, oh, great. You know, she's supposed to be really good. And uh, the topic was totally everything that I'm interested in. So I thought this is, this cannot fail. Uh, I'm going to absolutely love this. Um, and I found the, 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 the topic really interesting. The story of Mary Anning, who, you know, I, I love the fact that she brought her voice back because Mary Anning was uh, totally kind of trampled over by the Geological mm-hmm. Institute and they took all of her findings and didn't give her any credit for them. And the story, it was really interesting and I really found the the jealousy and that, that, conf- that almost lesbian, really, relationship between mm. Mary and Elizabeth really interesting, but I just found it incredibly dully written. Mm, okay. I thought the, the prose was basic and the, there was no excitement. I found it quite boring. I thought this is actually a really interesting, this could be a really interesting story, but I just found it incredibly dull, like nothing happened. I don't know, <laughs> did you feel the same way? or um, Not dissimilar, to be honest. So I had read, I read Girl with a Pearl Earring maybe in 2003 or 2004, and I hadn't read anything since, although I had had got this book about 2010, I think Annabelle uh, from Gas- from Annabelle's House of Books gave me a copy, and I, I can't remember quite why, but it says in, in there that she did. Uh, um, and I'm not at all interested in fossils or fossil <laughs> collectors or Darwin or anything like that. So, um, so I hadn't leapt towards it, and I I don't think I'd say completely boring. I did enjoy it. I I I and certainly didn't find it hard to get to the end. But I just found it rather bland in general. Mm. That was the thing. The, the writing was perfectly serviceable. It was, certainly wasn't bad writing. Um, but it, yeah, I just, it, bland was the word that I got when I got to the end yeah. of it. And, I, and the characters were interesting. I thought she drew both uh, Mary and Elizabeth quite, quite well. I thought their, their relationship with each other was sort of suspicious, but also admiring of each other, like respectful of each other's knowledge, but trying to bridge that class gap. There were certainly ingredients there for it to be interesting but I did just feel that maybe another author would have brought more out of it yes I thought what a waste basically of what could be a brilliant story and something that could have I think because I read it I must have read it very quickly after I read the French Lieutenant's Women actually and that's such a, a dense and clever and brilliantly written book and I just thought this is like something a child would write in comparison. It's like a, just a straight up narrative of here's a woman who met another woman. They found some dinosaurs. The end. Um, <laughs> and there was no complexity to the story whatsoever. And there was no weaving in of any deeper meanings or anything like that. And I thought that it was very clear to me that only the most basic of surface research had been done as well, which bothered me i think the thing is because i know so much about the victorian period now and especially mm. about natural science um because i've had to research it for in my master's degree um i've perhaps am more picky than other people would be but for me i just thought this isn't and i didn't i didn't feel like she made enough effort to sound authentically victorian in her praise no if it weren't at all really so yeah. um which, which i guess is a choice but it's and it's it certainly better than... It wasn't the right choice for me. I didn't think <laughs> it felt, it didn't feel, feel right. I think if you're writing historical fiction, you should at least get, if you're, if you don't want to do the, the narrative voice in 19th century, fine. But she could have made the, the language, the, the dialogue between the characters a little bit more realistic. I think what I find worse is when they, when they try to and it just 
like they didn't go far yeah. enough. Like we were just recently read Golden Hill by Francis Spufford. I think I mentioned. Oh, why was that not good? I didn't like it at all. I found. Well, I, I've been um, looking forward to trying that. Yeah, I mean, have you read it for book group? And some people there liked it, and some people didn't. So you might well like it. You know, particularly since you have a lot more tolerance for historical fiction than I do. But um, I just found it sort of a, almost like a pastiche of 18th century literature, but not deliberately a pastiche. Um, and the dialogue was just sort of neither modern nor historical. It was just like a sort of mess in between for a lot of the time, which is a bit off-putting. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't mind that element because I feel like if an author has chosen that they're not, to not make it historical dialogue, then yeah, that might put you off completely. For me, it's, it doesn't matter as long as they're consistent. And I didn't know, you know, I don't know anything about natural science, so I, I didn't notice any details incorrect. I think what I, got more of a sense of perhaps is that slight, slight um, stricture that an author feels if they're writing about real people and I don't care if what they write about real people is real or not if it's true or not I just want them to feel I don't want to feel that the author is being restrained from writing what they want to write or feels guilty about putting things that aren't true I just I, yeah if it gets in the way of the narrative then um or the, the flow of the narrative, and that's where I have a problem. I, I don't get it. When, I don't mind, you know, sometimes people say, well, that didn't happen, so they shouldn't have put that. It's, like, it's a novel, it's not a biography. I don't care. Yeah. But, but, but if it's impeding the writer, that's a different question. But before we shouldn't just talk about this, we should talk about the French left hand woman. I know you're a huge fan. You told me that I'd love it. Oh, no, I'm terrified. <laughs> did you hate it? I did not hate it, but I did okay. not love it. Oh, no. <laughs> so, okay, tell me more. So I really liked the style, particularly at the beginning. I, I thought, as you say, it's a really clever way to do historical fiction. And because I don't really like historical fiction in general, I much prefer this sort of clever, knowing historical fiction, where he is the coming in as this narrator. I thought it was a bit much when he had a separate chapter on how he would made up... A, chapter 13, he suddenly starts talking about how he made up the characters, but maybe we can talk about that later. But in general, <laughs> I quite liked that you're always conscious that this unnamed narrator was writing from the 60s and that was his his viewpoint but i just found long stretches of it lost momentum it's just too long i think it would be a brilliant 300 page book but he just sort of stretched that material so thin that at times i was going through like there's been no progression for the characters or for the plot or for anything for the last 100 pages or something and i don't know why everything is so lugubrious at the moment like Sharpen it up a bit. <laughs> well, you see, it's interesting that you say that because I felt that he did that on purpose to try I did wonder, and, yeah. and reflect the, the very baggy 19th century novels that often were you know, incredibly dragged out mm, because mm. they had to fill three volumes or they were being serialised. Um, and I, I thought he was being quite clever in, in, in dragging out his story and filling it in. I thought that his chapters very much echoed the, the structure of, of 19th century chapters. It's a bit like, um, oh, what's that book I hated? Um, <laughs> that was won the Booker Prize by Eleanor Catton. I can't think of it. The Luminaries. Yeah, the Luminaries. It, which very much was exactly like a 19th century novel. It's kind of like that, but at the same time, he did it with his tongue in his cheek and being very knowing that that's what he was doing. And I, I really enjoyed it. And I thought that the characters were great. I wanted to sort of leap in the book and be like, stop being so stupid. Um, <laughs> and I just thought it was just, it was the first time I've read a book like that. It was just completely not what I expected. I, the, the narrative mm -hmm. voice was so ingenious, I thought. 
um, and the way that he chose to write it, I just thought it was, and especially thinking that it was written in the sixties, I just thought it was really clever. Yeah, no, I, I, I'd feel a bit frustrated because I started it thinking, oh, Rachel is right, I do love this, and yeah, <laughs> I'll give him points for authenticity for it being stretched at times but I think you know I wouldn't have liked it if it was a Victorian book and I don't like it in this book so it's one of those <laughs> things where he he's maybe making a point but the the point is still putting me off as a reader I guess um and it veered yeah I found it veered slightly to the histrionic maybe with with the the love between uh the French trans woman and Charles um and again that might have been a spoof that might have been deliberate but I don't know I just I didn't, I didn't feel quite that he'd earned the length and the detail that he was giving. Yeah. <laughs> but I certainly like it more than you like Patricia Brent Spinster, so that's something. <laughs> I will. <mean>. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I mean, when you said I'd love it, it's, it's definitely much more a you book than it is a me book. <laughs> but, but yeah, definitely, so yes. that's true. I would, if I if I was reading this, the, the first thing I do would be recommend it to you if you hadn't already read it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did feel like I don't know what you felt about this, but his his love of fossils and in, and the mention of fossils sort of disappeared off the first hundred pages. It just never got mentioned again. Yeah, no, you, it was. You, you it was a bit like... gone. Yeah, I was a bit light on that, which was not my favourite thing. I mean, that's actually one of the things that I enjoyed the most about Remarkable Creatures is that she's she'd obviously done a lot of research on exactly how Mary Anning uh, dug up her fossils, um, and she was going to put every single detail about that in there. Um, uh, so I, I did enjoy that and the process of, of taking it out, and I liked the fact that you could understand how the fossils were then put back together and um, that how. Victorian people went about trying to figure out what creatures were and finding it without any of the obviously the information that we have today. Um, so that's like the technical side of the fossils I thought was great. Um, did she, did she the, get research right on that bit then? Did she? Yeah. Um, but I, I just thought the rest of it was kind of, I just thought, what's the actual story here? It was like she, she went online and read about Mary Anning. I thought, wow, that sounds really interesting. Uh, I'm going to write a book about Mary Anning. And then she was like, oh, actually, do you know what, what, what kind of book? What's what's the story here? She yeah, found okay. dinosaurs. Oh, and there's this other random woman who she was friends with. Great. Okay, I can put her in. It's also around that time. Kind of... like, that... Oh, sorry. You finished. No, carry on. So it's also around that time of novels being written that every novel seemed to have at least two narrators. It seemed that, mm. that nobody could publish a single yes. single narrator. And I think that was a bit of a fashion for yeah. literature that, you know, it's still is to extent. And, you know, those sorts of books have always existed. But it seemed, particularly around that, I just remember every time I read a new book, you always had to have at least two. And there was always one that was in italics. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think it can be used really well. I think it can be done really interestingly. Um, I particularly remember uh, um, Angela Young's Speaking of Love that was maybe a year or two before this was published, which is a book I really, really love. And she has three narrators there. And, and, and it stands out to me as a perfect example of the sort of book where you get exactly the right amount of each one because you always said every time you're starting to wonder what the other one is doing or going to say, they come back onto the page and they're sufficiently different that it works and that sort of thing. Whereas here, like I think it worked okay, but it felt it just felt a bit like Oh, we have to have two perspectives, and these two yeah. people will do. Yeah. Um, I think I would have preferred it if it had just been a third-person novel, which looked at both of them, or maybe going into their thoughts, but it didn't need to compartmentalise them so much, and then they could have, you know, it could have perhaps flowed a bit more. I don't quite know what difference that would have made, but maybe 
if you if you have to be like she thought, I've got these two different narrators. That's my story. There you go. Yeah, Without exactly. Needing to delve yeah, a bit these, more. These were two interesting women. I'm just going to squish them together and see what happens. And there wasn't anything deeper to it than that. And that's what I just felt like. Yeah, but you know, what was the point in this relate? Like, what what's the actual story here? What are you trying to say? What would have been more interesting for me? Um, is to do Mary Anning and the, like the, the men from the Geological Institute and a third person narrator looking at the complexities and, and going behind the scenes of the men being like, we can't let her, um, take out, you know, we can't let her take credit for this and all of the machinations going on behind the scenes. That would have been more interesting. Yeah. To me, just, anyway. Yeah, I think it's only, it would be interesting to see what would have happened if she, yeah. For, not, not that it was a gimmick, but perhaps it lent nearer to gimmick than it needed to. Mm. Whereas, you know, the postmodernness of postmodernity in John Fowles, it's very hard, I think, to do that without just being annoying. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, um, it is very impressive that he isn't, particularly since he really goes all the way. He's very breaking the fourth wall, very death of the author, sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and it is that chapter 13 where he suddenly says, I can make these characters do what they like. They're not real. I made her do this in the last chapter. I'll make him do that in the next chapter. Um, I, yeah, I, 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 what did you think of that chapter? Do you remember that standing out to you or did it just sort of merge in with the rest? Or? I think I really liked that chapter. I mean, I was just so in love with the, the way that he wrote it. I just thought, oh my goodness, this is so, like, so clever. I just couldn't get over how clever it was. <laughs> I'd also just been expecting a straight up historical novel, but that's what mm. I just thought it was going to be. Um, and I just started reading it and thought, oh, oh, he, oh, he's doing something really different now. I'm really liking this. Um, and I just thought that chapter was really fun. I just thought the whole thing was brilliant. I was just in love with the thing. I mean, <laughs> no I, criticisms. <laughs> Nothing bad about it. No, I really didn't think there was. I mean, maybe <laughs> if I read it again, but I think it's just, it's basically everything I love in a book. So. Yeah, I did. great. Yes, as it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> and so much of it, but uh, <laughs> uh, I yeah I did think it was a this there there was a nice sort of twist on the love story in that the um, climax of the novel, if I may use the term, oh. is uh, um, is or the, or the relationship is all very sort of hasty, yeah. <laughs> um, and the aftermath uh, is quite intriguing. I think it is interesting to see his shifting emotions i think i would have liked them to be a bit torture as i've said but um it's interesting seeing that like does she love me does she not yeah um is she using me is she not which perhaps is more generally associated with the female protagonist i don't know i would um, say you, that would be fair yeah yeah and so it is i think it's good to see him feeling the or interestingly to see him feeling perhaps the more more powerless in the relationship and the, and the one who doesn't even though you know he literally has more power, he has more money, he has more opportunities, but he yeah. ha- feel, can't read her that well, and he's constantly trying to read her and understand her, and she's being very enigmatic. And he's getting all these competing versions of her, both from what he hears and what he sees. Um, and I think that is conveyed well, uh, albeit yeah. too great a length. <laughs> I'll stop saying that now. <laughs> sorry. Um, what did you make of Ernestina um, as a character? Do you find her realistic? Do you think... Uh, yes, you, uh... I found her quite irritating, but I also thought that she was very realistic in terms of the type of upbringing she would have had and she came across as a sport of a brat and probably she would have been. 
I thought that yeah, was highly yeah. realistic of how someone like her would behave and her kind of shock and um, disbelief at, at Charles's behavior and, and the way in which she responds to what she finds out is, I thought, completely realistic as well. I, I thought she was really quite cleverly drawn, actually. But I, I found her sympathetic as well as being incredibly mm. annoying because I, I thought, actually, I probably would have... You know, if I were you, you at your time of life, I probably would have reacted in the same way. Yeah, I agree. I think she did, did a good job of her being quite annoying, but also recognising that she doesn't really deserve what's happening to her, and you feel a bit sorry for, for her. Interestingly, I'm just reading a novel, A Concert Pitch, by Theodora Benson, that has a character called Albertina, and both Albertina and Ernestina and Ernestina. Mm. So who knew there were that many options for Tina? Yeah, I know. <laughs> um... I also noticed in this book that Mary Anning's shop gets a mention. Did you, yes. did you spot the hat? Yes. I did. There's the connection. Yes. Only, only very briefly back when John Files remembered that his main character liked fossils. Before, yeah. <laughs> Wait a second, I forgot something. Yeah. <laughs> in. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the thing as well about, about the French lieutenants. I mean, it's just so multi-layered. There's so much going on. In a way, there's a lot going on. In a way, there is also not. <laughs> I don't know if that, but I feel like... I want to think. I quite like the Sam and Mary, the, the servants, sort of yes. parallel storyline. That was um, interesting without being too heavy-handed. It certainly wasn't like just gosh, look how awful it is to the poor people. But it, yeah. is, but it was interesting alongside. But um, I don't know. There was also the feeling that this relationship or this potential relationship was all-consuming. It did all-consume the narrative, even when other things were going on. I found. Who knew? Um, maybe that was the point. Maybe it was. Maybe there. Maybe it is the perfect novel. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you seen the film? I haven't actually. No, I'm a bit I scared to in case I don't love it. I I don't know how it could possibly do the the clever narrative. No, I was thinking that actually as I was reading it because I, I thought, oh, I'm presuming they just do it as if it's just a historical. Yeah straight up unless they've got like a wry narrative voiceover or something i don't know have you seen it i haven't seen it i've only seen that i've seen that short clip of meryl streep yeah. you know turning I, slowly I, to look at the camera <laughs> <laughs> which is exactly the sort of book i thought it would be which it yeah. very, very much isn't so um yes i feel like a wry voiceover could work it'd be very annoying if you just suddenly cut to someone just you know sitting in flares in the 60s something <laughs> <laughs> Uh, pen in hand, John John Charles mask <laughs> on, but um, no, I I have never been particularly tempted to watch it, but um, much as I love Meryl Streep, but but maybe I should give it a go. Yeah, I think I like it. Um, um, and I haven't read anything else by him either. No, I haven't. You hardly need read a book again after reading this no, one. It's, it's not everything. <laughs> <You can retire. laughs> oh dear. <laughs> um, well, I think it's probably quite clear which of these books you're going to choose. Yeah, just, just let the audience know, just in case. Uh, French Lieutenant Summers. Um, which one do you think I'm going to go for? I'm hoping you're going to say French Lieutenant Summers. I am going to say French yeah. as well, yes. <laughs> um, to be honest, I didn't completely love either of these books. I, um, yes, have reservations about both of them. The lesser of but, two evils. <laughs> but, um, yes, yeah, so it's evil song. I certainly didn't hate either of them either. I, I liked them both, but, yeah, I, I'm giving, I think I'm going to give my copy of, um, 
the Tracy Chevalier to a charity shop and my copy of the French Flesh Dance Woman is a library book. So <laughs> neither of them will be in my house after this week, but yeah. I, I, I liked them both. Um, but I think my reservations with the Fowls, because they weren't to do with the quality of the writing or the ideas, you know, that one still is better. I think, I think I would love it if it were 300 pages. So someone needs to make that version of it. <laughs> Okay, well, um, I'll, I'll work on that and then... Expigate uh, it for me. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, there you go. We're in complete agreement today. Oh, lovely. That's nice, isn't it? <laughs> um, in the next episode, are we doing George Orwell in the next episode? Uh, or did you want to do the email in the next... I wasn't sure if you had time for reading anything else. I don't know. I haven't had time to think about it. I mean, I don't know even actually when... Because I'm going to be moving and will I have the internet or not? Who knows? Um, we'll have to figure it out another never break. well yes at some point in the future we'll be doing Mr Pim Passes by versus Four Days Wonder by A. Milne that may be the next episode it may be the episode after that otherwise we might do 1984 versus Animal Farm by George Orwell in the next episode watch this space yes how exciting yes what a, how, what a tease yeah. uh, um, great thanks very much for listening do let us know if you have any ideas for future episodes that you'd like us to do Yes, please do. Um, and all the books and authors we've mentioned are at stuckinabook.com. Thanks and very much. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can visit my blog at stuckinabook.com. You can visit Rachel at booksnob.wordpress.com. You can support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash tea or books. We're very grateful to those who do. Uh, many thanks to you, particularly. Thank you to Maria, Gracie, Randy and Elizabeth. And we'll speak to you soon. Bye.